men. Well, in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Today we live in the midst of an information explosion. Never has the average person been privy to as much knowledge as they are today. With the internet and the click of a mouse, vast storehouses of data are at our fingertips. In the year 1292, the Sorbonne Library in Paris was home for 1,338 handwritten books. The library's cachet of literature represented 90% of the accumulation of man's wisdom for the previous several thousand years. Today, over four times that many books, nearly 6,000 books, are published in the world every single day. Rewind the clock 100 years ago. And today, Sunday's edition of the Atlanta Journal contains more information than a person living in 1919 would have seen in a lifetime. There's a volcano of knowledge erupting all around us. Social commentator Chris Kimball points out in the early half of the 1900s, you had to have guts. Courage and drive were what society valued most. In the latter half of the 20th century, You had to have heart, sensitivity, and self-expression were the coveted characteristics of American culture. But he says now in the 21st century, the organ of emphasis is the brain. Today, you've got to be smart. Intelligence is the most desired human trait. There is, though, a danger with this ascendance of intelligence. For man can become so smart that he thinks he's catching up with God. Don't be so foolish. All of our knowledge is just a speck on top of a speck on top of a speck compared to God's superiority. I love Isaiah 40, verse 15. It's the passage that puts us in our place. The prophet says that compared to our great God, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the balance. Look, God lifts up the isles, that is the continents, as a very little thing. A while back, I saw a headline in the USA Today newspaper that was entitled, Federal Officials Look at Smart Airbag Technology. The article discussed the high-tech development of computer sensors that help in the safe deployment of airbags in cars in the event of a crash. But what captured my attention were those three words in the headline, smart airbag, and it hit me. I know a lot of people who could be classified as a smart airbag. Hey, the person who deceives himself into thinking that he can question God's wisdom or that God needs his help or counsel is nothing but a smart airbag. You know, religious and secular historians alike consider the Apostle Paul as one of the most brilliant human minds that ever lived. In addition to his natural intellectual prowess, God revealed volumes of spiritual insight to Paul. 
of the 27 New Testament books, Paul wrote over half. He was given the lion's share of New Covenant theology. God entrusted Paul with a mountain of strategic truth. Boy, when I get to heaven, one of the first things I'm going to do, I'm planning on a very long sit-down conversation with the Apostle Paul. Yet in our text today, Paul concludes that what God had revealed to him was just a thimble full of wisdom compared to the endless ocean of divine truth. That in essence, Paul was living under an eyedropper where buckets of truth were yet to be emptied. We consider Paul the greatest theologian of all time, but Paul saw himself as having barely scratched the surface. He had lowered his bucket into a bottomless well. It's amazing that Paul's confession of naivety comes after some of his deepest theological thoughts. Romans 9 through 11 here are mind-grinding theology. It'll fry your gray matter. It's some of the weightiest, most cerebral arguments ever advanced. And you'd think when Paul finally shifts gears, he'd pat himself on the back for such profundity. But no, after applying himself to the knowledge of God, what impresses Paul most was not how much he knew, but what, how much there was to know. Stretching out his mind towards God expanded his heart for God. God's grandeur, his wisdom, and his working stirred Paul's heart and endeared him to the God he served but would never fully understand. And Paul's contemplation here was rewarded with both greater adoration and a strengthened dedication. I think our contemplation of these verses will do the same for us. In the last four verses here of Romans chapter 11, Paul looks in three directions. To the depths of God's wisdom. And to the height of God's ways. And to the center of God's will. Wisdom so deep, ways so high, a will so prevalent. None of us can completely grasp it all. Paul wants to make certain that no one becomes a smart airbag. First, let's look at the depth of God's wisdom. Read again verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You know, knowledge involves the gathering of information. Wisdom is the skill to use the information that's been gathered. And God is rich in both wisdom and knowledge. I'm not being irreverent when I say this, but God is the one true know-it-all. He is. Nothing is hidden from God. God is never surprised by new findings or new developments. He knows everything there is to know. He's capable of learning nothing. The theologians say that God is omniscient. The term means all-knowing. And God is also all-wise. He's never perplexed or stumped or baffled or caught off guard. There's no problem he can't solve. There's no riddle he can't answer. No knot he can't untangle. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes this about the nature of the God we serve. He says, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter in all matters, all mind in every mind, all spirit in all spirits, all laws, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, 
all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth. I suppose that about sums it up. God is like an artist, constantly at his best. He never has an off day. God is a ceaseless stream of creativity and understanding and perfect application. God's knowledge and wisdom exceeds the brightest human, even if he or she had no blind spot, no creative laws, no bouts with depression, no need for sleep. And God is not subject to the frustration of aging as we are. His powers don't diminish over time. His perfections never change. God is always at peak performance. The genius of our Lord Jesus was his ability to take imponderable truths and make them easily understood and applicable. In, in someone's, a wise man's words, he put the cookies on the bottom shelf. That's what Jesus did. I like what one author says. We take simple truths and make them profound, whereas Jesus took profound truths and made them simple. God's truth is so simple that a first grader can read the Bible and through it enter into a saving knowledge with Jesus. While a skilled theologian can meditate on the very same passages and and uncover layer upon layer of new insight, never exhausting its usefulness. God's truth is both simple and profound at the same time. As the old adage put it, the Bible is a river of truth in which the wisest man can never touch bottom, and yet the simplest child can never drown. When my son was five years old, we were driving home one day, and he asked me, he said, Dad, what are we going to talk about? I suggested that we talk about different areas of our lives, you know, how things were going with our family and with our siblings and with our friends and with God. When I suggested, well, let's talk about life, Nick shook his head and he said, Ah, Dad, that's complicated. And life can get complicated for a five-year-old or for a 60-year-old. If you haven't noticed, life is not always a smooth, seamless progression. It has its ups and downs. Often circumstances arise that are hard to explain. There are moments when we wonder if God has lost control, if he's fallen asleep at the wheel. Sometimes we conclude that God's made a mistake. In the face of life's complications, we can jump to the wrong conclusions. Reminds me of the bunny rabbit and the snake. Both animals, they were orphans, and they had been blind from birth. Once they were traveling through the forest when the bunny tripped over the snake. Well, the rabbit apologized. He said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm blind, so I didn't see you. In fact, I'm also an orphan. So I didn't even know who I am. Well, the snake answered. He said, well, that's interesting. I have a similar story. Tell you what I could do. I could slither all over you, sort of size you up, and maybe then tell you what you are. The bunny said, great. And so the snake slithered all over the rabbit's body. When he was done, he concluded. He said, well, he says, you're covered with fur. You have really long ears. Your little nose twitches and you have a soft cotton tail. You must be a bunny rabbit. Well, the bunny was so grateful. He wanted to return the favor. He said, well, maybe I could sort of paw all over you and do for you what you've done for me today. and tell you what you are. The snake said, please, would you? And so the bunny started pawing all over him, crawling all over the snake and all. And 
when the bunny rabbit was done, he concluded, he said, you're smooth and slippery, you have a forked tongue, and you have no backbone. I'd say you must be a politician. <laughs> well, here's my point. Sometimes things happen in the dark, and, and our perspective is dim. We don't see all of the factors at play. And unless we're careful, we can draw the wrong conclusions from our circumstances. Corey Tin Boone stated, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. Just because you're in the dark this morning and you don't understand what all is going on in your life, don't assume that God is in the same situation. Friend, he's not. So often God is working behind the scenes of our life, incognito. God is all-knowing, and God is all-wise. He never miscalculates. He never crosses dates or arrives late. When you're passing through the darkness, trust that God is always on time and always in control. And yet sometimes, like the rabbit, we can draw erroneous conclusions, can't we? We can assume that it's finally happened. Oh, that God has made his first mistake, and it happened to me. Years ago, just before his election, former Atlanta mayor Bill Campbell, he made a mistake that almost cost him the race. The AJC reported it this way. Mayoral candidate Bill Campbell made a mistake, misstep that even a friend conceded was major at the standing room only funeral last week of Reverend Eric B. Fleming at Mount Carmel Baptist Church. Speaking before a crowd of 7,000 at the funeral, Campbell characterized the death of the 22-year-old Fleming in a car accident as a mistake, causing a hush of dismay to fall over the churchgoers. He spoke of a half dozen attendees, including two ministers, who explained that Campbell's statement undermined their belief that God is all-wise and all-knowing, which is why it created such a stir. Well, the article went on. Antioch Baptist Cameron Alexander rebuked Campbell at the funeral, earning applauses and amens when he said God never makes mistakes and wasn't running for re-election. The next week, an embarrassed Campbell returned to the same church, apologizing to the Mount Carmel congregation for doubting God's wisdom and love. And I'm afraid many of us owe God an apology for the times when we've questioned and we've doubted his wisdom and his love. Oh, how many occasions have you wondered if what, was, if what God was doing in your life was actually a mistake? I love the three words in Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. You recall the story. Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt to the banks of the Red Sea. But the Egyptians had a change of heart. Their army chased them to the edge of the ocean. And a fiery cloud held off the army all night long. But what a long night it was. Imagine the Hebrews waiting for the morning light. What would happen? The sea was in front of them. The angry Egyptians were behind them. Verse 21 tells us, The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. And made the sea into dry land. Note those three words. All that night. While it was dark. While the Hebrews were waiting. God was working. Even in the dark. God was working all that night. 
God was working in the dark to accomplish the people's deliverance. To the Hebrews, it was lights out, but God's plan unfolded under the cover of darkness. And this is how God often works in our lives. It reminds me of the little boy who was scared of the dark. Late one night, his mother asked him to go fetch the broom off the back porch. He balked. He said, but mommy, it's dark out there. The mother told him, said, honey, don't worry. Jesus is always with you. He's with you wherever you go, even when you're in the dark. The little guy, he walked over to the back door, cracked it open a fraction, and then he called out, hey, Jesus, if you're out there, how about handing me that broom? Hey, Jesus is with us even in the dark places. Oh, never underestimate the depth of God's wisdom. But also look at the height of God's ways. Verse 33 says, How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. In other words, when you check the universe's pecking order, I think you'll find God at the top of the heap. Look to the tallest mountain, the precipice of the world. There you'll find Jesus. He's the king of the hill. No one can ascend to God's rung on the ladder. He looks up to no one. He looks down on everyone. Verses 34 and 35 uses three rhetorical questions to show that God has no colleagues no counselors, and no creditors. No colleagues, no counselors, and no creditors. He never needs help, never has, never will. Hypothetically speaking, if God did ever have a problem where he needed help, where would he turn? There's no one who really knows his concerns. There's nowhere for him to go for counsel. There's nobody to whom he owes an explanation. You see, God is really the one and only true person who's on his own or who's truly on his own. Understand, God has no colleagues. Paul asked in verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? God has no equals. He's peerless. Put God in a lineup and trust me, you'd pick him out. No one thinks on God's level or sees from his perspective. Hey, go into the nursery this morning and start up a conversation with the babies in the nursery on the subject of quantum physics or Einstein's theory of relativity. Goo-goo and gaga is about all you'll get on the subject. And yet those babies come closer to explaining the complexities of particle physics than we come to fully explaining God. The sum of all our knowledge is little more than a goo-goo and a gaga compared to the vastness of our God. What we know of God would be zero if he hadn't have chosen to reveal himself to us through his word, through the Bible. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, the prophet speaks of our unlimited God. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, God has no colleagues, and he has no counselors. For Paul asked, or who has become his counselor? Oh, there are many people, including you and me, who on occasion have tried to counsel God, 
How often do our prayers consist of offering God suggestions? Oh, God, I need a new job. And here's how we can do it, Lord. Just listen to me. Oh, Lord, I'm tired of being single. I need somebody to marry. And I've got just the right one picked out, if you'll listen, just for a few minutes. Or, God, it's time for my spouse and I to have a baby. We're tired of waiting. We want one right now. Without realizing it, our prayer life can become a suggestion box. Realize, God has been in charge of the universe for a long, long time, friend. And he hasn't suddenly needed your help. He's not looking for your guidance or your helpful hints. But he is expecting from you your allegiance. You know, a good dancer knows that you can't lead and follow at the same time. One partner leads, the other follows. And the same is true in a relationship with God. And guess who's expected to follow? It's always you and me. It's been said, just as there is foolish wisdom, so there is wise ignorance. Don't pry into God's ark. Don't inquire into things not revealed. I'm happy that God makes me a member of his court not of his counsel. Here's another way to say it. When God puts down a period, don't you change it to a question mark. We have no right to expect God to consult us before he makes his decisions. He's not obligated to solicit our opinion before he makes moves that even affect our lives. God is God. He's not applying for the job. God owes us no explanations. God has no counsel. And God also, he has no creditors. Verse 35, or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. Hey, God loves you. He loves you, friend, but he doesn't owe you. You know, too many Americans have grown up believing that God, the God of the Bible is the author of the American dream. That somewhere in the scriptures, God has obligated himself to provide us all a good job with benefits a higher salary than our dad, weekends off, a fat savings account, a split level, a spouse, 2.8 kids, and a dog and a cat. Certainly God loves you, and he wants to give you good gifts. He likes giving good gifts to his kids, but you need to know God doesn't owe you spit. His gifts and his blessings are never something we deserve. See, this is what Job failed to realize. Job thought that God owed him an explanation for the terrible calamities that had had befallen him. They say in demanding why, Job lost his way. He resented God's behind-the-scene movements. He wanted God to come out in the open and speak to him like a man. Job got very proud and very arrogant. Job reminds me of the pro golfer Tommy Bolt. He was known for his sweet swings and for his terrible temper. Once after lipping the cup, lipping out of the cup on six straight putts, Bolt threw his club, he shook his fist into the heavens, and he shouted to God, Why don't you come out and fight like a man? Author Philip Yancey, he has a chapter in one of his books that's entitled, Arms Too Short to Box with God. This describes for me Tommy Bolt and Job. Both were foolish enough enough to think that they could duke it out with God. But Paul knew better. 
He realized that his arms were too short, far too short to box with God. He didn't even try. Paul faced unanswered questions in his own life. But rather than resent God's hidden purposes, he rejoiced in them. Job got mad at what he didn't understand. Paul marveled at what he didn't understand. Job pouted. Paul praised. Here in Romans 11, Paul expresses his trust in God's wisdom and in God's ways. You know, J.B. Phillips once wrote, If God were small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. I take great consolation in the fact that I could never decipher all there is to know about God with my little pea brain. Think about it. If you and I could figure out God with our little brains, he sure wouldn't be much of a God. Embrace God and you've got a tiger by the tail. God is not going to play by your rules or do business on your terms. You know, there's an old saying that I love. If you dance with a grizzly bear, you better let him lead. And this is true of God. King Solomon said it best, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Once there was a little boy who was drawing a picture of God. His mom tried to set him straight. She said, son, you can't draw a picture of God. No one knows what God looks like. Unfazed, he replied, he said, they will when I get through. I've met too many Christians, though, that are like that little boy who think they've got God all figured out. They'll condemn everybody who disagrees with their interpretation rather than let God be God. They limit him with their own logic. All human beings are capable at times of stuffing God into the box of their own ignorance. Verse 33 tells us that God's wisdom is unsearchable in his ways past finding out. The New American Standard translates Translation uses the terms unsearchable and unfathomable. I don't, I don't say that right. Unfathomable. Something like that. I could do it better with all my teeth, but that's coming. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 tells us, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Mystical Jews, they have a name for God. They call him Insof, which literally means without limit. God is infinite. Man is finite. And that presents us a problem. How can our limited mind discern this limitless God? It's obvious God's wisdom is unsearchable. This is why man could never discover God on his own. God is never found. God's wisdom and his truth is beyond our reach. Thus, it has to be revealed to us. You know, when my kids were tots, we'd play hide and seek. And I was a pretty clever hider. I could hide in places where my kids would never find me. But that wasn't the point. The fun was not staying hid. It was getting found. And this is how God feels. You don't find God. He makes himself findable. He reveals himself to us. You search for God would have ended in despair had God not chosen to reveal himself to you. The knowledge of God comes to us not through investigation, but through revelation. We learn of God. We experience God, not because we've reached up to pull him down. 
but because he stooped down to be with us. In his grace, God has simplified his wisdom. He's made himself knowable through his word. God has taken his boundless, limitless knowledge and wisdom and dressed it in the straitjacket of finite language and limited logic. The passage I quoted earlier, Deuteronomy 29 verse 29, concludes this way. The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. God's wisdom is not only unsearchable, but it's also unfathomable. The Greek word means untraceable. The steps that God takes, the logic that he employs, the grids through which he analyzes situations don't always show up on our radar. They're untraceable. The TSA scanners at the airport, they can detect an array of items, but not the Holy Spirit. Psalm 77 discusses the mysterious parting of the Red Sea. You you remember the story. The psalm says of God, the voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters and your footsteps were not known. It was all over their head. I believe one of the chief reasons for the here and now is to teach us to trust God even when we can't trace Him. When the storms of life blow across the sands of time and God's footprints disappear from our view, what do we do? Do we still trust that He's there? Always remember, what's over my head is still under God's feet. What's over my head is still under God's feet. I love this prayer. I cannot grasp your mind, but with my whole heart, I trust your love. Paul looked to the depth of God's wisdom and to the height of God's ways, and finally he looked to the center of God's will. He says in verse 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The deeper Paul probes into the world around him, he sees God's purposes carried out in all areas of his life. You know, God is the hub, according to Paul. The axis around which everything else in life spins God's prevailing presence and providence, His overarching plans will never fail. At the heart of every situation stands God. God's architectural stamp is on the plans of the universe. See, all that happens is of Him. Look, and you'll see God's name written in the corner of the canvas. It's etched on the base of the vase. He is the artist. He is the architect. He makes all things beautiful in his time. The universe is also through him. He is the means and motive behind all the natural forces that combine to make life happen. He's the author and finisher of creation. The ebbs and flows of life start and end with God. All things begin, end, and run through God. All things are through him, and all things are to him. God is the planner. He is the means. He is the ambition of all things. God is the single thread that weaves throughout the universe and ties all things together. Everything is to his praise. 
the drama we call life ultimately ends in bringing him glory. In those times when a tornado touches down and wipes out an entire town, when things like that happen, we wonder how this can be of him and through him and to him. And yet the Bible declares that it is. Friends, right now we see through a glass dimly, but ultimately all things will work to his glory. Verse 36 reminds me of the Sunday breakfast when the little boy had too much waffle and too little time to eat that waffle. His parents were late for church, so they rushed him out of the house. Rather than waste a good, perfectly good waffle, the little guy stuck it in his pocket. He figured that he could finish it later that morning. Well, at church, the pastor talked about the omnipresence of God, that he's everywhere at all times. This upset the little boy. About halfway through the sermon, he prayed, God, if you're in my pocket, please don't eat my waffle. And yet God is in our pockets, or better yet, we're in his pocket. Life is God's idea, and whether we realize it or not, he is involved in all that happens to us. Though there is an evil that accounts for a lot of bad stuff, both good and bad are at the very least allowed by God, and it's ultimately intended for his glory and our good. It's been said, God is an infinite circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. God is not only at the center of our world, he's at the center of your world and my world, whether we acknowledge it or not. God is creator and craftsman and king. If you want a full and meaningful life, you need to stop ignoring God. Instead, you need to revolve your world around him. Let me close with a story. A young naval officer on his first overseas assignment, he had orders by the captain to initiate the launch of this massive aircraft carrier. With a stream of decisive commands, he had the deck buzzing with activity. And in record time, this mammoth ship left the dock and steamed out into the channel. The young ensign was proud of the good job that he'd done. He was surprised, though, when he got a radio communication from the captain. It read, My personal congratulations upon completing your underway preparation exercise according to the book and with amazing speed. In your haste, however, you've overlooked one of the unwritten rules. Make sure the captain is on board before getting underway. And you know, the same is true for us. You can be a Christian. Your deck can be busy and buzzing with activity, even church-related stuff. Oh, hey, look at me. I'm taking charge. I'm barking orders. I'm getting lots and lots of stuff done here. You think you're running the ship just fine by yourself, but don't be a smart airbag. Before you set sail, make sure that the captain is on board and at the helm. Blaise Pascal once said, I love God because I know him, but I adore him because I cannot comprehend him. Who are we up against our great God? Look deep into God's wisdom. Look high at God's ways. Look all around at God's will. Friend, come down off your high horse. A little humility goes a long, long way. You're not your own captain. Let me read verse 36 one more time. And I want you to join me 
on the last word, would you? Here we go. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen.